Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. There's nothing we like better at the Bureau than oral testimonies from people in the counterculture, in the underground. As some musicians leave behind the counterculture, escape it and attain success in the culture, the overground, you could say. Some even take with them a sense of still being countercultural. Tom Waits, maybe Radiohead even. But it's quite rare for a musician to achieve success in the commercial mainstream and then turn and head back into the counterculture. But my guest today has done that at least three times. From founding a band in Birmingham in the 70s that went on to huge success, a certain band called Duran Duran, uh, leaving them, later having success as a solo artist himself, and then in the 90s having further solo success as an artist, and then as the songwriter musical producer for a certain Robbie Williams. You could say he's tasted several times uh, pop success, but each time he seems to turn around and head back into the English folk underground with his band, The Lilac Time. He's Stephen Duffy, and I'm talking to him across the length and breadth of the British Isles. I'm stationed up here in Findhorn, right at the northeast corner of Scotland, and he is in the southwest in Cornwall. So, Stephen, from across the British Isles, welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Hello. I'm very pleased to be here talking to you from the opposite end of the country. Well, welcome. Well, listen, uh, Stephen, I'd like to start off usually with this easy question just to get us going. You grew up in the 60s and 70s in Birmingham. And, um, you know, that time, I suppose, is what most people called with the sort of right and smack in the middle of the countercultural era. And what did counterculture, the counterculture, the underground mean to you as you were growing up? We, uh, in Birmingham, we had a shop called the Peace Centre and it, it smelled of jostics and there were kind of early fanzines and beatnik books. And it, so the counterculture meant the Peace Centre to me. Beatnik literature passed through the jasmine and the, and the, the jostics of the, of the late 60s. I, you know, I, the, that was what got me into the whole thing. And later on, the Peace Centre is where you actually went and got your tickets to get on the buses to go on the great CND marches, which is how I got to know London, marching around, um, you know, banning the bomb. And so that was really successful, as you know. <laughs> yeah, well, the uh, the nuclear bomb was set off from Kinloss, which is next to Findorn here, or they used to anyway. We banned it all the way up to you. <laughs> yeah, well, when, if Scotland goes independent, we're going to have to work out what to do with all that nuclear stuff. Well, you know, you know, you know where they're going to go. They're going to come down here to Cornwall. Is that right? Yeah. So. What do the Cornish feel about that? I'll have to go and ask them. <laughs> well, let's go back to the 60s and 70s and the Birmingham Peace Centre. Is it still going, the counterculture? Is it still, uh, is it still with us? The the amazing thing about uh, having uh, a counterculture, the amazing thing is to have a culture that can actually have, that incorporates a counterculture, to have a, a culture that is so huge that you can have a, a culture and a counterculture is uh, very appealing. And we don't even have a culture anymore, do we? Have you seen it? Have you spotted it kind of, have you got it in a file behind you? I mean, whereas the culture is gone, the culture is... The, the, the culture was put on a drive in 
2003, and we we haven't backed it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I dropped it, I think. We'll have to send it to one of those uh, ex- very expensive uh, recovery places and try and get it back. We're going to need it. Um, so, but circling back, so when you were growing up, um, you know, and all that stuff was going on, Ban the Bomb and the Peace Centre and in Birmingham, with you, for you and your friends, uh, was there a sense that there was this thing, the underground, that there was something happening, there was some sort of change in the air and there was something going on which might be very different than had come before? Well, definitely. I was born in 1960, so the the, the period of of change was happening somewhere else because Birmingham in the, in the 60s was very, you know, it took a long time. In fact, I don't think the 60s arrived in Birmingham until probably 1970 or so. Uh, so we, but, you know, my, th- there was, not only was the Peace Centre, but, but there was the Arts Lab. You knew, there was something going on. And and the my brother was, and it still is, four years older than me. So he would be, you know, he'd be getting the Tyrannosaurus Rex and he'd be listening to John Peel's Perfumed Garden. So And then, and he got into the Incredible String Band and so I was lucky. So the, the first concert I ever went to was when I was nine at the Birmingham Town Hall, which was the classic lineup. On just after We Tam and the Big Huge, I suppose. That was my mind blown forever to see them kind of, you know, to, because that was that that really was the counterculture alive. That was before your very eyes. Well, we're gonna play a song you chose ducks on a pond from that album and so that was a signal moment for you right and you know seeing them and what they were they're a little bit forgotten i mean i don't know much about them incredible string band and but they were kind of very influential at that time on you know on you and on on the uh, sort of folk underground so tell us a little bit about them but they were a uh, scottish three-piece from glasgow uh and the first album is kind of quite a straight sort of folky record and then they they all went their separate ways, and Robin went off and got all of these, you know, gimbries and the strange instruments, and Clive left, and and they became well the epitome of countercultural hippie, but they were just so there was a whimsy that has kind of kept people away from them for fifty years. There's something about them that is very divisive. You know, people really can't bear it when. Because Robin's just all over the place because he's so incredibly talented that he can kind of be swooping around. And then you've got Mike sort of barking and wailing and, you know, playing the harmonica badly and Christianity, Buddhism, you know, it was all in there. Answers are the questions, sir. 
The lady suits the lion's fur. Meek as a lamb, he follows her wherever angels are. Sing me something. I asked the ice, it would not say. But only cracked or moved away. I thought I knew me yesterday. Whoever sings this song, ducks on a pond, ducks on a pond. It's rather beautiful and wonderful and strange, actually. As we were saying, though, there is a kind of whimsy in it, isn't there? Um, a sort of out-of-time feeling somehow in terms of those nursery rhyme lyrics and stuff. It didn't survive, did it, really? It didn't survive punk. It didn't survive glam rock. It was so kind of cast aside so quickly. Just I mean, farewell, sorrow, praise God, the open door. I ain't got no home in this world anymore. So it's kind of bringing in bits of American kind of country folk but it's uh but i love this line here i had a little letter full of paper inky scratches everywhere can't beat that you'd mentioned earlier um you know you had the beatnik era in the 50s you know which was seems to me anyway to have been quite sophisticated and jazz and bebop and all that and then you had the much more visceral cool sort of streety rock and roll this music which obviously harked back, you know, to an older British tradition with whimsy and pastoral feel. What brought that change about? Do you think it might have had something to do with LSD? Ah. I mean, this is, I might be coming from left field here with this, but it was the, um, I think the beatnik thing did, it became the hippie thing, didn't it? The beats did become hippies. Wrecked Link wasn't the, from the Beatniks because Allen Ginsberg became the king of the hippies. He grew his hair, he took his clothes off, and and then Alan passed it on to Patti Smith, didn't she? Didn't he? In a way, so Patti is the last of the Beatniks, uh, and so it did actually last all the way from the fifties up to and including punk. So it was very resilient. But then, unfortunately, the eighties did for everybody. There was this incredible continuity of counterculture and culture and things getting better and better. And then suddenly there was the 80s. And ever since then, it's been the 80s ever since. Don't so, you think? Well, it's interesting because, you know, most people, I think, when asked that question about, you know, what is the counterculture, when is the counterculture, you know, we, we tend to see it in terms of 1950s, 60s, 70s, and, you know, maybe early 80s. Um, and I wonder whether if we ask the question in sort of 10 years' time, whether the 90s might be included in Because it seemed to me that there were stuff in the 90s, you know, the, the rave uh, culture, the free festival scene, that was, you know, countercultural. 
we did hope that that was going to be something that was but then the thought of taking mind-bending drugs in a nightclub listening to terrible music wasn't what I was all about by that stage I, I wonder if Alan Alan Ginsberg probably would have been there but I was just not Ginsberg enough and I was also very worried by the, in fact, I wrote songs about this, that when this all happened and people were, you know, you, you had the travellers and the rave scene, and it was just like, you realised how easy you had it if you were kind of a, a late hippie and then a punk. You know, it was very, that was very easy. You didn't have to go and sleep in a hedgerow <laughs> and endure the sort of the piercings and the tattoos, the terrible rave music and not knowing what you were ingesting. <laughs> but did perhaps something happen in the 80s that was a kind of sea change? I've been talking with the writer Michael Moorcock, and he he very much uh, sees it in terms of that the 80s sort of did for it in some fundamental way. Uh, he put that down to the kind of Thatcher era, and well, particularly he was talking about London, I suppose, but the kind of commercialisation of London, the capitalisation of London, um, in terms of property and just general values, that that kind of, you know, definitely ended something. Do you think so? I think that, well, what we have to remember under James Callaghan, the difference between the, the disparity between rich and poor was at its smallest uh, of all time. It's never been as, you know, the, the rich. and So that, I think that's, it felt, and that's why they, they went absolutely ape shit and thought we're going to have to bring the army in here to get rid of these socialists because things are just becoming a little bit too equal the we could afford even though we'd spent our lives building cars we could now actually afford to buy them and this appalled them so much that they they had to kind of have this coup and put thatcher in just and then they moaned about the couch culture and they still are aren't they they hate there's something about it they really hate and they and the way that the seventies has been so incredibly disparaged, and the seventies was a fantastic time because for the first time working class people actually could afford to get on a plane and had holidays, and you know could afford to do things. Interesting. The um, I suppose the beautiful summer of love, psychedelic experiences, possibly acid fueled, many of them of the sixties. Uh, as the you know sixties turn to seventies, and a lot of that countercultural stuff gets gets more political, more activist. You know that's where the ecological movement got going, and uh, gay rights and women's rights and all that sort of stuff. But didn't it founder a little bit just because the economic situation was quite tough in the seventies? I don't think it was. I think it was right. the first time that ordinary people actually had money because the unions they always kind of say, "Oh, the unions destroyed," but the unions gave us money for the first time so there was uh, and so so that was the first time that you could actually afford to buy you know books and records and stuff and uh, and of course then when Thatcher got in the the culmination of the counterculture was probably the riots wasn't it maybe it was the the miners strike maybe it was the that was the end of it in some way when you just thought that They've won, but then then out of that came the rave scene, as you. Yeah. Well, then of course you know the rave scene was the it was when the government actually tried to legislate, didn't they, with the kind of laws against repetitive beats and people gathering in fields and all that sort of stuff, pretty unsuccessfully, as far as I can tell. But um, let's go back to you. So you've had this kind of you know big influential experience by seeing the incredible string band um, 
in Birmingham. And But then things are changing quite a lot musically, you know, glam, uh, as you mentioned, and then punk. So uh, was that, did they come in and did they start to influence you? I think I saw the Incredible String Band twice and then I saw uh, the Ziggy Stardust tour also at the Birmingham Town Hall. So that was kind of extraordinary. But there was something about that that I knew I could never you know, that was just so extraordinary that you couldn't possibly pick, I couldn't picture myself being involved in that. So I, ke- I kept on with the uh, with the folky thing uh, myself and then, until punk came along. And of course, if you listen to the, the, the first Clash album, that is kind of a, a folk album. Mm, that's interesting. Because it's, it's so sort of weedy. You know, it, it, it is basically, I mean, you could have done it on a couple of acoustic guitars and distorted it a bit, but it is it is basically a folk album, isn't it? I'm going to have to listen to that. I suppose the unfortunate, I think maybe it was the synthesizer that killed, um, I think it was Gary Newman. <laughs> Definitely, without question, Gary killed the counterculture. He crashed his Tory plane right into it, into my peace centre. It was all over. We'll have to ask him, uh, see if he agrees with that. Um he is one of the very, very few musicians who admits to being a Tory, isn't he? There's him and I think the the drummer from Yellow, and and obviously the the Take That maestro, Gary Barlow. He's also a Tory. But to bring us on to something else, there's an amazing film by the Watersons called Travelling for a Living, and it's about it's a documentary. It might have even been a BBC documentary, and I think you can still see it on the BFI channel. And it's about them, because the Watersons were completely um, a cappella. I think that they might have used guitar a little bit. The best film about music that there, there is, you kind of have this idea of people travelling around. I think that they tried to drive back to Hull every night from wherever they were playing in Great Britain. And if they couldn't manage it, they, they had... There's a great scene where they're kind of carrying mattresses out of their van. And you know, just the idea of 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 what that this life was like, singing sort of folk songs and sea shanties and stuff. Right. So the Watersons were uh, an English folk group. They were from um, from Yorkshire, from Hull, as you said, and uh, a family, weren't they? Really, a family with uh, short shifting members uh, playing, singing rather um, traditional songs with uh, accompaniment and uh, with harmonies. And from the sixties and seventies and eighties. So, how, how did you come across them? Um, because I was kind of into the folk thing and um, I'd go to folk festivals. There was one outside the Birmingham Repertory Theatre in, in the mid-70s uh, and and it, inside that, what the on the evening, it was the all, I think they were all West Midland, the all West Midland version of Fairport Convention played and were louder than Slade. It was kind of, it was quite incredible. But before that, outside... Um, Martin Carthy had played acoustically, uh, and and obviously he he was was he, he was probably already married to Norma Waterson, so you know that's that's how I kind of discovered them, and it was just so shocking. In fact, down here we have a, a sea shanty festival, and I keep on thinking well, one of these days I will write a you know a, a, a batch of sea shanties and then go to the shanty festival and sing them and see if I can, kind of can get away with it. The there's something about the folk underground that oh, obviously you could trace it back to you know medieval times or earlier. I don't know, but I mean in terms of that 20th century that re-emerge uh, 
in the 60s and 70s, obviously, influenced you. The Waterstones, very much part of that. And it's just kept going, hasn't it? And you've kept returning to it. I mentioned in the intro, you know, you've had this rather remarkable career where you've been in the charts, commercial success, several times. Uh, but you keep returning to this roots. This, it's almost like there's some sort of countercultural soul gravity pulling you back repeatedly from... Um, other things which you've experimented with so very successfully and it pulls you back into this sort of current of the folk underground. Why is that? I just, and, and this has been my thing for the whole time, is I just feel like I have to carry on until somebody takes it, takes me as seriously as I take myself. <laughs> and I think that's probably the case for most artists. You have this kind of, well, I do. I have this incredible sense of self-belief. And, uh, you know, I'm just desperate for somebody else to believe in me as much as I believe in myself. And, it, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but I, every, I keep on thinking, well, I'll make another record. Maybe they'll get it this time. You know what I mean? And it never, it, it never happens. And I'm always, you know, incredibly disappointed. But, there's, you know, there's going to be another one next year. Lilac 11. <laughs> Lilac 11. Will you be up and going since 1986? Uh, we're going to hear something from that uh, a bit later, but let's um, hear something from the Mortisons. This is All For Me Grog and Tobacco. All for me grog, for me jolly jolly grog. All for me grog and tobacco. For I spent all my store with the lasses on the shore. And it's all for me grog and tobacco. All for me grog, for me jolly jolly grog. All for me grog and tobacco. For I spent all my store with the lasses on the shore. And it's all for me grog and tobacco. When I come home, then me sweetheart I shall sing. All for me grog and tobacco. And me sweetheart will sing when she sees the wedding ring. And it's all for me grog and tobacco. All for me grog, for me jolly jolly grog. All for me grog and tobacco. Son for to dangle on her knee. All for me grog and tobacco. And she'll sing him to sleep while I sail the stormy deep. And it's all for me grog and tobacco. All for me grog, for me jolly jolly grog. All for me grog and tobacco. For I spent all my uh, tell us why you love that. Well, I think that actually is from the film uh, Travelling for a Living. And which, you know, if anybody it, it, right now stop listening to this and go and find this film and watch it because it will change your life. It might put you off music forever, but it, there is something, especially the scene where they're singing this in the, in the club, is 
I, there's something about it that I find incredibly moving the idea of them driving around the country and singing these songs and a lot of the songs are about the sea and about hull uh i don't know this they, to me they, you know the, there are the beatles and then there's the watersons an incredible string band and the birmingham lineup of the uh, airport convention who were as loud as slade and actually maybe even slade as well <laughs> and that's a song about uh, smoking and drinking of course not a um not a fashionable subject for lyrics these days. But why did? But that's why everybody got into music in the first place, isn't it? So, I mean, this is a. I mean, we just wanted to instead of going to work, you just wanted to smoke and drink, and that's the. the on Sunday nights, my family, who kind of they worked for the, the telephone, the GPO, and they were, the you know they were registrars, and you know they had they had jobs they hated anyway. And uh, my dad was a telephone engineer. And the, the way that they, you know, the Sunday night and the, the weekend was over and they were going to have to go back and have no time to do their own thing. And this, this absolutely, and I suppose that's why we became so countercultural was because we didn't want to, we didn't want to be part of that. And then in the 80s, when there was such terrible unemployment in, you know, the right, I would never go on a right to work because work was exactly you know the thing you just didn't want to do because you saw how it destroyed your family and the you know obviously you just wanted to uh you know you wanted to to do your own thing and what could be more countercultural than doing your own thing well exactly and there is they are a family broadly the watersons and you know you're talking about your family there and there is something in that folk tradition um of the family or the collective, something communal, you know, the sing-along. Um, and with the lilac time, I mean, was that part of the appeal for you, you know, not to be a solo artist, not to step away from the kind of limelight and to be part of a group, um, you know, collective thing rather than a, a solo or a stardom thing in some way? Well, actually, this brings us on to the... the I've also been putting together this... Um, this album of cassettes recorded in 1979, 80 and 81, when I was in, in a band with the sadly just departed David Cusworth, who was in a band with Nicky Sutton uh, after the Swell Maps. Um, and I did a gig last year and I, and he t- in Birmingham and, he, and he, he came and he said, the last thing he said to me was, we, you, we really must put out a record of this thing. And then he died. Um, which is, you know, extraordinary that the last thing he ever said to me was this this thing. So I'm, I'm now compiling this record from the cassettes. But when you listen to what we were doing back then, it really, what I say is it's not demos. Uh, we went kind of think we weren't making demos that could then be turned into singles so we could be successful. They're more like field recordings for for an idea, for, for a, not even a lifestyle, just for a life where you'd sort of make a record and do enough gigs to call it a tour and maybe a peel session. I mean, the, and that would have been, that was it. We went, we didn't, there was never, the idea of stardom was sort of not part of the, the, the counterculture really, was it? I don't think so. I mean, it seems to be sort of a bit anti-stardom and maybe anti-individualistic. Obviously, stars uh, definitely came out of it. Um, but there's something also that you referred to then and a bit earlier, um, is that I don't know the politics of the Watersons or, of, you know, your politics, um, but there is something, it seems to me, 
uh, of the folk counterculture that's resolutely of the left. It's difficult to imagine a kind of right-wing folk tradition somehow. I don't know if there is one. Am I missing something? Well, what music does promote the culture of the right? Wagner? It's very difficult to to think of. I mean, but that, because that's their, that's their huge bugbear, isn't it? The fact that there is actually no good right-wing culture and all of the good stuff comes from the left. I mean, look at Corbyn. You can just tell he's got a fantastic... Waterson's record collection at home. It's got all the. Well, it's vinyl. difficult to it's difficult to imagine uh, Boris listening to the Watersons. I might, I might have got him wrong, um, and I can't imagine he's maybe he's caught the vinyl bug. Who knows? You know what Boris's favourite record is? I don't. Goat's Head Soup. Goat's Head Soup. He's a Stones fan. Every time he gets a new office, he, he kind of gets his sound system and he and he puts on his CD probably of Goat's Head Soup. Well, Mick Jagger went to. Um, London Business School, didn't he? Maybe that's what it is. Um, let's move on to another one of your choices. And this is by Anne Briggs. Again, I don't know anything about Anne Briggs. Tell us, um, who is she? Well, I, I mentioned her before. She was actually part of this Watersons incredible string band, Bert Yanch, Clive's original folk club. So she's she's a, a part of all of that. And I think uh, Bert used to do Blackwater Side too. And, I, and it... And it and Led Zeppelin probably stole it. But she she is the, you know, she is the solo superstar of this early folk culture. One morning to take Down by black water side, twas in gazing all around me, twas the Irish lad I spy. All through the fall part of the night While we lay in sport and play Then this young man he arose And he gathered his clothes he said, fare well today. Well, that's not the promise that you gave to me when first you lay on my bed. You could make me believe with your lying tongue that the sun rose in the west. Then go home, go home. That is uh, very beautiful. So. What happened with her, with Anne Briggs? But she, she actually 
left. She's kind of dropped out altogether and went and lived on a beach in the Highlands. So, I mean, she really did live it. You know, she got out there and, you know, can you imagine actually being that good and thinking, no, I'm just going to live on a beach in Scotland? <laughs> we would kill to be, able, you know, to be able to do that, you know, like that in one take, to be that good. Right. And, you know, it is, it is otherworldly and magical and also to me sort of um, somewhat out of time. So, what is it for you that uh, is so inspiring or so moving in that or in, you know, in her music? Is it, it does it sound, it doesn't sound old fashioned, does it? It, the, it doesn't, it's, it's a traditional folk song, but it doesn't, it, to me, it doesn't sound like it was recorded in the 60s or the 70s. It just is. It's very difficult to say what, why music moves you. I did a, an interview with somebody about Nick Drake years ago and this and I got there and I couldn't think of anything to say you know apart from yes you know there's there's very little you know you know what I mean when when something when you're in love with something it, it kind of goes beyond words doesn't it yeah I mean when I said out of time I mean don't know anything about her or when that was recorded but it could have been recorded this week I mean sound wise um and I remember when Watchmen came out and I was sitting in the cinema and it starts off with that amazing sequence, uh, which is soundtracked by The Times They Are Changing by Dylan. And I'd never heard uh, that track in that sort of setting before. But it sounded so amazing and it had that same quality in a way. Is that, was it recorded in the early 60s or mid-60s or was it recorded last week? You know? I think about the, that sort of dead acoustic guitar or that the sound, you just think, well, they've obviously haven't changed the strings since 1843, you know. <laughs> That it, there's that sort of incredibly dry, dead sound, and then that sort of, you know, the is such a fantastic setting for for a voice like Dylan's or Anne Briggs. So and I just, just thought, I always think, I always think I'm going to make a record like that, and then, I, and I start, and then I think I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have to play the bass, and then I'm going to have, I know I'm going to play the drums, <laughs> I'm going to play the drums, and now I'm going to, I'm going to play the organ, and, and Nick's going to come and play the banjo, and we're going to put backing vocals on it. Fuck it, you know what I mean? And it's just like I always think I'm going to, it's going to be simple. It's going to be one chord and this beautiful, <laughs> and then. Yeah. You know, I was born to overdub. I just love. <laughs> Look, I, I'm a I'm a fan of the overdub. It's probably because I can't play anything very well. Uh, I love overdubbing and garnishing things. Um, but let's let's go back to the beginning of the lilac time. Um, so, 1986. So, as we said earlier, um, you know, you'd had and were having, you know, commercial chart success, um, and you, you know, you said that Nick, your older brother, um, had taken you to see the incredible string band and obviously been a signal experience and that was obviously percolating circulating uh with you still but you decide around about then middle the eights is to you know not turn your back on sort of success or anything but i mean to to take a different direction to go back maybe to those earlier in inspirations with nick and to form the lilac time and you've been doing that ever since obviously with forays into other things um, but you stuck at it through thick and thin in a kind of countercultural way where as fashions have come and gone and there's been a, very few of the bands at times doing that sort of thing and much more now. But what was it? You know, why? Well, the strange thing was that uh, on my 25th birthday, I was on top of the pops doing icing on the cake. And 
And then the the next, my next birthday, so I was 25. On my 26th birthday, uh, they played, was the first time they put Don't Look Back, the Dylan film, on the television, you know. And I watched that. And there was something about the acoustic guitar. So that that was the kind of the turning point that I thought I've got to go back to, to the acoustic music that I, I can't... Uh, yeah, I the 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 pop thing had turned its back on me because I was such an uncomfortable pop star. Because I I didn't believe it, you know. I didn't believe in it. I you know, it was it was it was what was happening, and and it, I felt like I wanted to be part of that that you know that conversation or be part of the whole thing, but it just didn't suit me. Uh, so I I decided. So I went back to Birmingham to Bob Lamb who made the first UB40 album on a four-track in his flat. And, he, you know, a genius of, of, of recording, capturing stuff on on, ta- on electronic tape. So I went there and made six tracks um, and took them back to Virgin Records, and they dropped me straight away. Returned to Yesterday, like, basically the first side of the of the Lila Time album, because that they wanted, they were becoming more of a dance label anyway. So it was, you know, are we going to release Return to Yesterday with Stephen Duffy or are we going to put the Mantronics record out? And they chose Mantronics. And who can blame them? <laughs> I would have done the same. What happened to Mantronics? I don't know. That's a very interesting question. I still have the record back there. So what happened next? I mean, uh, you've been dropped by Virgin. I mean, I've been dropped by a fair few labels and publishers. Um Quite a long list, but um, I, know, I read somewhere that you said uh, you. I think you were quite proud that you've been dropped dropped by some of the best labels in the world. I've been dropped by more labels than there actually are now. You know, because there's only three. So I went to a, a little um, record shop in Birmingham called Swordfish, who had their own label, and I said, "I'm, you know, will, can you release this before Christmas?" And then they could. I think that was it was like 1987. Yes. So that's that's the next year, 1987. And uh, they said, yeah. So they, I gave them the tapes, and we put out the first uh, Light of Time album. And then the, the, the inevitable. That then what has always happened? We got great reviews, and we went off to play that strange bar in Manchester University and Princess Charlotte, and you know all of those venues that probably have only just stopped existing. Uh, and you know that's the tour that I've always done. I've never really got beyond that. You know, the, you, the first tour. So the Light at Time endlessly did the first tour. And you decamped uh, as a group to uh, to Malvern, right? Great Malvern, right? Yeah, because we had to we had to go and get it together in the country. You know, I knew what we had to do, and so I found this uh, this incredibly old farmhouse, and it didn't have a phone. But but I I mean in the in my telling of the story I kind of say that we all lived in this but I, I didn't I actually bought a house up the hill and I kind of looked down on the surfs of the rest of the lilac time <laughs> my brother but kind of talks about that time and saying crumbs in the butter and that's <laughs> all you have to know about what the lilac time were up to and my brother's whole life crumbs in the butter the lilac time by Nick Duffy. <laughs> But funny thing is, we were on we we the record had come out and every and suddenly people wanted to sign us, you know, the, after the indie record, 
And Virgin tried to sign us. I didn't kind of say, well, you know, you actually own half of this record. You paid for it with the demos. And, uh, but we signed with Fontana and who were in the States were Mercury. And they, they kind of were quite enthusiastic about us. We went to play in America. We played in Woodstock and, and all over America. Uh, but to actually go and talk to Mercury or talk to Fontana, we had to walk through fields to a phone box outside the pub, uh, three quarters of a mile away, because there was no there was no phones in the in the 14th century farmhouse that I put everybody in with crumbs in the butter. I don't know whether that's why we didn't make it, or why we're still together. And you are still together, and you have kept going. As I keep saying, you know, you've had forays off into doing other things and back into the charts. But you keep returning and you keep going all this time, all these albums, all these songs. I just want to hear a bit more about why, I suppose, and uh, you know what it is that's this, uh, this sort of countercultural gravity, as I think of it, that uh, keeps drawing you back, or, or maybe you see it a different when way. When I lived in Great Malvern, um, Martin Carthy and Dave Swarbrick came to, uh, to play a little pub down the road, and this was like 1990. And uh, and it's things like that that you you're just you're out and about and you you know Nigel, I was living Nigel Kennedy had moved in a few doors up the road it was kind of a, a crazy time for Worcestershire in general but we uh, we went down to this gig and just to see them you know it's that rem- that rem- remembering being with these people being reminded that. Now, the, the Martin Carthy, one of the greatest guitarists of all time, Dave Swarbrick, a fantastic violinist and singer. I mean, his, his, some of his singing in Fairport is, is brilliant. And and there they were. They I don't I don't even they didn't even have a PA. I think they were just doing it. And it and it's that you know, that's what keeps you know if if they did it and. It, it's kind of like Patty Smith, isn't it? She said she calls it her work. You know, it's like she's driven to. You know, and I think that you, you've either got that, or you know, but you know, I left Duran Duran because they wanted to sound like Japan. It m- would probably be, have been easier to have, to have stayed and sounded like Japan. You know what I mean? But I, I felt like I had to go and write a sea shanty, even at that point. Take off these satin jodhpurs. <laughs> Wipe the mascara away. <laughs> where the- is my grog? Nick, <laughs> Nick Rhodes, where is my grog and tobacco? <laughs> um, let's have a listen then to some Dave Swarbrick. This is your choice. This is the ace and juice of pipering. Thank you. 
something amazingly joyful about that, isn't it? It's uh, and positive and also sort of strangely groovy. It sort of swings and it's almost like sort of dance music played on a monophonic instrument. Um, what is it? Got that sort of when Glenn Gould does the you know the Goldberg variations and it kind of it becomes like jazz, you know, mm. and that swings. It's just like that that ability to swing in in a in a in a place where you kind of feel that it's actually inappropriate, you know, to actually be able to, to be able to make a solo violin jig be sort of swing and sexy is kind of incredible. And at that gig that I went to in in Morven. Uh, Nigel came too, and and that he kind of got up, and they were playing. So Swarbrick and Nigel Kennedy were playing together, and Swarbrick was so confident in his thing that he was trying to boss Nigel Kennedy, that he was trying to take, and, and you know, and that Nigel was at his absolute imperial pomp. You know, it's after the four seasons, but Swarb still thought he could take him on, you know, which was just a, a, an an amazing. You know, to to witness, they were trying to kind of push each other, kind of <laughs> away from the. You know, they were trying. To, I'm going to bust this one. I'm I'm going to swing. No, I'm going to swing. You, yeah, it was, it was an amazing thing. Great gigs, great times. And at your gigs, how were the audiences? How did the audiences respond to the light time? Because you know, you were countercultural. You're out of fashion, um, particularly I think in eighties and nineties. You know, it would. It's kind of different now, isn't it? But who were the audience? Well, that's the thing. There wasn't really much of an audience. So, I mean, the, the ones who were there responded brilliantly, you know, because I think they felt embarrassed for us. I mean, we actually, I actually did do a gig in Newcastle once when nobody turned up. The gig, the gig of death, yeah. But I think that, that it did coincide with them winning something and there was like a, a parade down the street. Or maybe they made that up. Newcastle United, when was the last time they won anything? <laughs> Well, um, we we went to Moscow. We were taken to Moscow once uh, a vast expense uh, to play at a party, a private party in there. There was nobody. Nobody came to see us at all. Even the person who was throwing the party didn't turn up. <laughs> the person who's throwing the party didn't turn up. I'm not even sure whether the person who's throwing the party was at the party. Uh, but there was a, the party was going on in one big room and we were in uh, the next room and uh, there was nobody there. So I did say to the fixer and uh, the, the person who brought us, you know, Shall we carry on? There's nobody here, and he's like, "Oh no, no, you, you, you've been contracted. You've you have to carry on." So we played to, to nobody. <laughs> That's what you do. That's what you do. That's counterculture. But didn't you uh, also like the time? Didn't you do a tour of village greens of of England? We did. This was another one of Alan McGee's ideas for us, because it was all part of that rave time. It's like, like let's do a free tour. Let's do it. So we put a number in the in the paper, and people could phone up and say, uh, "We'd like you to come and play here." And we, we we all got in a van with a PA, and we drove off. But uh, the the you know the our trust or Alan's trust in people who can actually use a, a, a phone and kind of say, "Come and play here," that they they weren't necessarily the best promoters of. Uh, so we, that was another tour where we played to a lot of empty. Places and three or four very uh, chuffed people who had managed to book us. So we did. That was kind of like, but playing private. That was like playing private parties to nobody. But I, apparently, um, a couple of the guys from Radio had tried to Radiohead tried to get us to come and play, but we didn't do that one. Unfortunately, that would have been useful. You know, that that would have been networking for the lilac <laughs> time. 
Yes, but you have had uh, you have had the experience of playing in very different settings, haven't you? When you were um, working with Robbie Williams, I mean, you were playing to vast, you know, enormous drums in Southeast Asia to tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of people on vast stages with you know huge production teams and stuff. Um, but uh, as ever, you you left that behind and came back to the Lilac time. Are you missing the the Village Greens? The, we did a world tour after I did the record with Rob. But the strange thing is, with the light at time got back together just before I was working on that record with Robert. And we we just played Cecil Sharp House, which, of course, is the epicentre of the, the folk movement. And then the next gig after that I did was with Rob at uh, Live Aid, Live 8, was Pink Floyd's last gig, which brings us back round full circle to the Joe Boyd and the and the, the counterculture. And then we went all over the world playing Olympic stadiums and stuff. And then we got back to Hamden or somewhere in Scotland, and it was like playing a club, playing Hamden Stadium, because the Olympic stadiums were so much bigger. But it really made me realise that it was, uh, you know, it, it was good that I had left Duran Duran because I, I would have been rotten at that. Why? You have to be big, don't you? You have to be like Springsteen or there's something about, you have to have a commanding charismatic presence, don't you, to play a stadium. And, uh, you know, my the, the, my little songs and little voice, I don't think it would have. But it, so I, I was glad that, uh, you know, I gave Simon Le Bon a, a break there and kind of said, here, you take this one. And uh, I would have, it would have been dreadful. And um, so I, I got back, and but I, I'd had this un- unfortunate experience. So I, I kind of just thought everything I did was really important. And so I kind of played, we booked a few dates, and I had like a Pro Tools rig. And, and, and of course, nobody really turned up to these either. And it was, and I made this expensive record, but it wasn't really that expensive. And, and I suddenly realized that things had, had moved on. Whilst I'd been away playing in stadiums that, you know, people had learned how to download music and and I was on this sort of vanity tour. Well, you came back, you made several more records since Astronauts is, uh, that record from all those years ago is going to be reissued and you've got a single out at the moment and a new album coming. Um, Stephen, we're getting to the end. I actually wanted to play a song from Astronauts just because... Um, I really like it, and it's. Uh, um, I love that record, and uh, you know we were talking earlier about that studio where you made it, and I did some stuff back in the day, and um, and also living in North Kensington, you know I lived in a in a tower block opposite Grenfell, obviously many years before it that hideous incident when it burnt down uh, tragically, but I think also because you know North Kensington, you know next to Labrook Grove, next to Portobello, near Portobello. And, you know, several people that we've had on this show had some connection there, including Nick Laird Clues, you know, your friend. And, uh, you know, that was such an important part of uh, counterculture in London. So, and you lived there for quite a while, right? I lived in Queen's Park, which apparently constitutes being um, part of North Kensington. Um, but this song, uh, North Kensington, is about, this is about when we left London and went off to, to put crumbs in the butter in Great Malvern, mixing it up as only the lilac time could. North Kensington, blue skies are over you. Oh, smiling eyes, I 
Desperation like a field of dew. The sticky fence you pushed me through. North Kensington, where we first played, we first made. Sand to singing sand, the blood red wine and you divine. North Kensington, where we first lay, we first made. Wrapped in an awning, I came to the seaside to see why the girl cried. I love that. Um, how does it feel to you listening to that 30 years? And I'm sure I'm sure you've listened to it uh, in the intervening years. I haven't really heard it that uh, much since. And the uh, before we started this interview, we talked about corner recorders and that the the the, uh, the, the car horn and all of that. It was recorded one Saturday with the microphone out the window at corner <laughs> recorders, and uh, and then the re- the recorders the um, the, the fluty bit was actually recorded in that little small cupboard room in Great Malvern, uh, in West Malvern, actually, looking over Worcestershire from the hills. And I was kind of sitting there in this tiny little room with my Shure 57. So that's what... But I, I'm, I was relieved that the drums never came in. I kept them <laughs> waiting for the drums to come in, and it was like, thank God for that. <laughs> so, uh, Stephen, I think we've got to the end. Thank you very much for that wonderful uh, wander through your countercultural life and the life of the Lilac time. So, Lilac 11's coming, uh, Astronauts reissued, and you've got another project on the way, right? It's this strange cassette record of me and David Cusworth in a band called The Hawks, uh, obviously Five Believers, that's coming on 17 records in the spring. So, it's a good busy 2021 there. Well, listen, why don't we uh, finish up with a song from this latest release, this latest EP of yours, which has got two cover versions, and one of which is uh, a Bert Yanchong. So, um, tell us about that. It's a disco 45 12 inch. It's called The Hills of Cinnamon. And on the back, we have uh, There Comes a Time by Bert Yanch and Pancho and Lefty by Tans Van Zandt. It's well worth 
14 pounds or however much disco 45 12 inch vinyl singles cost these days we'll put a link to that in the show notes thank you so much Steve. thank you very much for having me so this is the lilac time comes a time There comes a time, babe, when we've got to go Our time here has been great up till now But we've got to go, love Hit the road and start another show One too many mornings we've been late One too many Nights fooling round, babe, not caring Not knowing how we're faring We're living side by side, love, not knowing For we are bound up, where on earth, love, we are going Seed of life still growing Come spring next year, love We could be laughing Could be riding high and free With the sun upon our backs We could be singing with the birds a-wing Let us pack our things and leave tonight, gal Keep going till the road runs out and comes to an end, girl And hope that life turns out Bert Jansch's song, There Comes Time, covered by The Lilac Time on their recent vinyl release. And my guest was The Lilac Time, Stephen Duffy. Wonderful wander through his life and times in the folk underground and the counterculture. I'm Stephen Coates. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I ought to say, actually, you can now check out all our programmes at bureauoflostculture.com, but you can also check them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, anywhere where you can get podcasts. You can subscribe. Just put in bureauoflostculture.com. You can even leave a review if you like. We'd like that very much. Anyway, see you, hear you next time.